Take your Bibles and turn with me to Matthew chapter 6 and verse 13, the latter part of that verse. Did any of you notice anything new up here this morning, over here? Uh, that was a gift this week, uh, the baby grand piano, uh, and it really sounded good this morning, I thought. It kind of was nice, and we appreciate that. Uh, we had to scramble all week. The person who normally tunes our pianos and things couldn't get here this week, so Judy got busy and got on the phone and called a bunch of people and finally found somebody, and he came Friday morning and, and tuned it, and we're glad that he did, because that really adds to the service. Thank you. Um, the Lord's Prayer, the Disciples' Prayer, the prayer that expresses how we are to pray and how we are to approach God by instruction from the Lord Jesus himself. What a, what a glorious thing this is. I mean, we've looked at it now for about eight weeks. And what a glorious thing it is that we have the privilege of having the Lord Jesus Christ to instruct us in how we ought to pray. I mean, you know, prayer is, is, is an intimate thing. Prayer is to be a, a time when we come before God in a, in a very personal way in many ways. We do it corporately as a group, but we also do it individually as we come together. And it's to be a very intimate time with the Lord Jesus Christ. It's to be a time when we focus upon His grace and focus upon His goodness, focus upon His provision. And, and Jesus Himself, God incarnate, the very living Son of God, says to us, now when you pray... Don't be like the hypocrites and say a lot of things over and over and over again. Don't do it so people will hear you and try to make a show out of it. But when you pray, here's how you ought to pray. And then in just a very short period of time, he gives us a beautiful outline for how we ought to approach our Father. He talks about how in the beginning I think we ought to give praise for our redemption. And we do that by the very first word, our Father. We're thanking him for redeeming us and bringing us into his family. The, the very word father carries with it that family relationship that we did not know and did not have until he did his work through Christ and applied it by the Holy Spirit to our own lives. What a, what a glorious thing it is to just begin our prayer thanking God, praising God for the provision of our redemption. Then he talks about us adoring, I think, God's very transcendent greatness. He says, our Father who, who is in heaven, there is a transcendent glory about God that we don't just kind of pick up on in our natural sense. He is our Father who is in heaven. Yes, there's an intimacy in prayer. There's a closeness of God. And the scripture says, pursue him for he is not far off. But there is that transcendent majesty of God whereby he sits on his throne in heaven and he rules over all his creation there ought to be a zeal for his glory Jesus says in, in that those phrases hallowed be your name or holy be your name there ought to be a zeal in our own personal life that the holiness of God that the, the glory of God be seen and be revealed through our lives and through our church throughout the whole area throughout the whole world Jesus says there ought to be a longing for his triumph, a longing for his victory when we pray your kingdom come. And we talked about how the kingdom comes when the gospel expands. The kingdom of God is not set up by swords and by horses or in our day by tanks and by missiles. 
The kingdom of God is established through the gospel of Jesus Christ going forth and expanding as men and women are brought into faith, of, uh, faith in Christ and are really made a part of the family where they too can say, Father, that's the expand. There ought to be a, a zeal and a longing for his triumph. There, there should be in our prayer time a total commitment to him. He says, not only pray for your kingdom to come, but pray, O oh Lord, that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's a total commitment to his will. That is a saying, Lord, it's not what I want that matters. It's what you want that matters in my life. So let my wants be conformed to your wants. Let my will be conformed to your will. That's what the psalmist said when he said, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Delight yourself in the Lord. Make him your source of delight and pleasure. And he will give you the right kind of desires. He will give you the pursuit of his holiness. The pursuit of his righteousness. He will give you the right things to look for in everyday life. A total commitment to him. He also talks about our reliance on him for everything. And simply saying, give us this day our daily bread. Give us this day our daily bread. There is an acknowledgement there that we depend upon Him. An acknowledgement there that we're not in control. It's not up to us. Then He comes to a repentance of sin. And forgive us our debts. As we know, we are to forgive others who are our debtors. But Lord, forgive us our debts. Wipe them away. Cancel them out. Obliterate them before our very eyes. There is a repentance that must come. And then as we looked at last week, there's a sense of weakness in one, in one way and a need for his protection. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. You know, that, that's a, a prayer for God's protection in every single area of life. So we see the prayer is, is, really, kind of a, is really kind of comprehensive for everything, every need, every concern that confronts the Christian in this life. Jesus has dealt with it and said, here's how you take it before the Father. Here's how you pray. And then we come to this last part of verse 13. Now let me ask you, do any of you have a Bible in hand that does not have a second part of verse 13? Okay, there's one, two, three, four. There's several that are. Do you, any of you have a translation of the Bible that takes that last part of verse 13 and puts it in brackets or in parentheses? Yeah, many more even. That's what mine does. And many have it just there. Why in the world would some versions leave that out? Would some versions bracket it? And would some versions just leave it as a normal part of the text? Well, here's a simple reason. The main reason is that in many of the older transcripts, the older manuscripts that have been discovered since, say, the King James Version of the Bible was translated, many of the older manuscripts do not have that last phrase. It's just not in some of them. And so when they've gone back to earlier translations or earlier transcripts, and you tend to think the earliest or the best translations or the best transcripts of the, of the New Testament text or the Old Testament text, they are not there. So some of the newer translations who have the benefit of the older Tra uh, older transcripts or, or manuscripts tend to leave those out and just say, well, it wasn't there in the older ones, so we'll not look at it. You know, some people look at that and say, oh, man, this is a real problem. It's really not a real problem. True of the matter is that in Jesus' day, in early Palestine, it would have been very unlikely 
for there to have been a prayer taught that did not end with some type of doxology. Prayers were just doxological all along. They would pray, they would express their thoughts, and then they would break forth in praise. And we'll see some of those in Scripture in just a few minutes as we look at them. So whether it was actually there or whether it was something that the apostles a little later on said, you know, it's just a normal thing to express a real praise to God and a doxology to God and close this thing out on a real high note. And so, you know, Jesus talked about doxology a lot. He, he did some doxological statements all through his ministry. And so we think we ought to put that on there and make that a part. It does not change doctrine. It does not change truth. It does not change what it's saying, one iota, or anything the prayer is saying. So I tend to look at it and say, I, I think it's a good thing to have as you come to the end of the Lord's Prayer. And so we're going to look at it this morning. And this is what it says. And if you read all of verse 13, and do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We looked at last week. For yours is the kingdom and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Now we ought to know that that's really a part of the text because who wouldn't end a prayer and amen, right? That's, never mind, you didn't get it. We always end our prayers and amen. It just fits there to sound like the way a prayer ought to be ended. But what is being said there is far more than just a, a closing remark. It's far more than just saying, okay, now, you know, we, we always end our prayers typically most of us will end our prayer in, in some normal way. We may vary a little bit from person to person, but usually we'll end our prayers in, uh, you know, and we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Or we, we pray in the name of the Son, amen. Or we pray in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. But there's always some type of expression at the end of the prayer. At the end of this prayer, there's this doxology that quite honestly, if you, if you read it as it ought to be experienced, I think, these last words, and yours is the power, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. There is a joyous, triumphant expression there when you come to those verses, when you come to that verse and those words. There is an expression of, of praise and adoration and closing that comes to this prayer unlike any other. He starts by talking about his kingdom. For yours is the kingdom. And quite honestly, I think the words kingdom and the power are to be experienced and to be understood coming together there in, a, in sort of a dual meaning, a, a linked together meaning, if you will, as you look at these verses. Yours is the kingdom and the power. Now, we've already talked about how we are to pray your kingdom come. We've already seen that back in the the fourth chapter before Jesus started the Sermon on the Mount, he said to the people, <coughs> from that time on, Jesus began to preach and say, repent for the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is at hand. We, we have seen that kingdom is a very, very real part of this whole prayer and this whole sermon that Jesus preaches. And we even titled this series of sermons, Kingdom Living in a Fallen World. Because we are, to be we are talking about what it means to live as a part of the kingdom of God because the gospel has touched our lives. Because Jesus Christ has changed our life. Because we have been adopted into the family. We have been redeemed by the Father. What does it mean to live in that kind of kingdom relationship under the king and at the same time to live in the fallen world that we're in? 
You know, we're part of God's kingdom. Paul said our citizenship is not of this world, but our citizenship is in the kingdom, in the kingdom of God. Our citizenship is in heaven. We are merely strangers passing through here, but we are living in the world. So we are, as Jesus said, we are to be in the world, but not of the world. We are to be in the world as kingdom representatives, as ambassadors for Jesus Christ, as those who are speaking the truth of Almighty God among a people who quite honestly could care, couldn't care less about what God has to say in most circumstances. We are a part of that kingdom. And so Jesus closes his prayer by saying, for yours is the kingdom. Yours is the authority. Yours is the present day expression of your rule even among, among a fallen world. The psalmist expressed it like this in Psalm 103 verse 19. He said, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his sovereignty rules over all. There is that transcendent experience of his throne is in the heaven. There is that imminent experience that he is not only in heaven, but he is ruling over all. That is over all of his creation and over all that he is and has done. This denotes his all-embracing mastery of the entire created order. Throughout scripture, God is pictured as king. He is pictured as sitting on a throne. And you see him acknowledged as such. Now, we've already talked about this a little bit, but we in America have a little bit of a problem understanding that. You know, we, we don't understand monarchy. We don't understand kingdom ruling. Oh, we know that there was once a king in England who we didn't like very much, and so we broke away from him and rebelled and set up what most of us refer to casually as a democracy which we didn't set up, by the way. We set up a republic, which is greatly different from either a direct or indirect democracy. But we set up a republic to, to set ourselves apart from that. And throughout the, throughout the colonies in the colonial days, you would find signs everywhere that said, we serve no sovereign here. To which George Whitfield, the great evangelist, said, how in the world can I convince a people of their need for the king when they have signs like that that say, we serve no sovereign here. There is a sovereign, there is a God, and he rules and reigns over everything, the psalmist says. As a matter of fact, we see in our country someone ruling over us in a limited sense only if we vote for him, you know, or if the people vote for him. And he's elected. I want you to understand something. This sovereign monarch, this God of all creation and God of all the, the universe is a sovereign who rules over heaven and earth whether you vote for him or not. He's not dependent on your vote. He's not dependent on majority rule. He rules and he reigns simply because of who he is. There is an all-embracing mastery of the entire created order. You see that in, in Daniel chapter 4. If you recall that story about Daniel and, and Nebuchadnezzar, and Daniel interprets Nebuchadnezzar's dream for him, and everything's going pretty good, and he offers his advice. And, and then it says in verse 28, it said, all this happened to Nebuchadnezzar the king. Twelve months later, just a year after Daniel giving him advice after interpreting his dream, twelve months later he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, 
And the king reflected and said, Is not this Babylon the great, which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? Yeah, that's pretty bold, isn't it? Looks out over the kingdom and he says, <laughs> Look at everything I've done. Look at everything I've accomplished. Look at everything that I've brought about. I've done this for the glory of my majesty. <laughs> and listen to this. While the word was in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven and saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared sovereignty has been removed from you and you will be driven away from mankind and your dwelling place will be with the beast of the field and you will be given grass to eat like cattle and seven periods of time will pass over until you recognize the most high is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. So Nebuchadnezzar, you think you're so great? Let me show you who's really in charge. It is the Lord God, and he reigns, and he gives dominion. He gives authority. He gives ruler to whomever he wishes. Immediately the word concerning Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from mankind and began eating grass like cattle. And his body was drenched with dew of heaven until his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. I'd like to see a painting of that. Well, I have seen a painting of that. It's not very pretty. But at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, that is after seven periods of time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven and my reason returned to me and I blessed the Most High and I praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, dominion for rulership or kingdom. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. Dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation, and all the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and no one can ward off his hand or say to him, What have you done? I mean, here's Nebuchadnezzar who just comes to a point of acknowledging the kingdom of God, even though he had a mighty kingdom, even though he ruled. And he felt he had established a mighty kingdom. He had to come to a point of realizing, no, Lord God, most high, you are the king, not me. So it talks about his kingdom. Psalm 145 talks about it. And you could go on and, and, and read that later. I'm not going to take time to read all of Psalm 145. But it just begins by saying, I will extol you, my God and my king, and I will bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and I will praise your name forever and ever. For great is the Lord and highly to be praised. We sing that sometimes. An expression of his lordship. An expression of his kingdom and his power being established. Then the, then the prayer goes on to say not only your kingdom and your power but also your glory. Yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory. Glory, again, is something that we sometimes fail to grasp an understanding of in our day. You think of glory in the Old Testament, in the Shekinah glory of God. Glory is really the revealed manifestation of the presence of God. It's a, it's a, it's a powerful expression 
of his presence. In the, in the Old Testament, in the tabernacle and in the, in the temple, the Shekinah glory came down as a pillar of fire and set among, above the holy of holies. And the people would say, when they would see the Shekinah glory descending, they would say, there is the presence of God. God is now present among us. And there was that revealed presence, only on special times. And as they wandered through the wilderness, the Shekinah glory of God led them through the wilderness. There was a cloud by day and a pillar of fire at night. And the people would look out ahead of themselves and they'd say, there is the glory of God. God is leading us. God is directing us. By what? By his glory. Because his glory is his manifest presence among his people. The glory of God was most greatly seen 2,000 years ago when his son came to this earth. And Jesus Christ, who had all the power and all the glory and all the majesty, laid that aside in a sense for a period of time in order to be able to come and live among us. You didn't see the glory in Christ as you did in the Shekinah glory. <clears throat> he appeared as a man. He appeared just like you and me. Oh, he never sinned. And his teaching was unlike any teaching anybody ever heard. I mean, there were, there were hints and there were glimmers, but his glory was one, in one sense hidden from us. The scripture even says he was unseemly. He, he, wasn't, he wasn't something you just wanted to look at all the time and say, oh, wow, what a, what a good-looking man that is. There was no, nothing about him to draw us to himself other than the power of his presence. Then on the Mount of Transfiguration, if you remember that time when he took... Peter and James and John up there with him. And Moses appeared and Elijah appeared. And in a very moment, the, the, the Lord was transfigured. He was changed. And for a moment, they saw all of his glory right there. And what did Peter want to do? He wanted to stay right there on that mountain. He said, we've seen the glory of God in the Son of God, and we don't want to leave here. Let's build a tabernacle for Moses, and let's build a tabernacle for Elijah, and let's build a big tabernacle for Jesus, and let's just stay here and worship. Because when you see the glory of God, you really want to worship him. Jesus says, yours is the power, the kingdom, and the power, and the glory. It's that doxological expression. When you, when you sense his presence, when you see his glory, the thing you want to do is fall down and worship and, and give him glory and honor and praise and adoration above everything else. Johann Sebastian Bach realized that. I'm not a music person to, very much, but I can appreciate beautiful music. But when Bach wrote his pieces, when he would come to the end of every single piece he wrote, he wrote three letters at the end of those. B, B D, G. That was not his initials. Johann Sebastian Bach would not be uh, uh, SDG, excuse me, SDG. You know, but those words stood for something very significant in his life. Because Johann Sebastian Bach was writing his music for one purpose alone, and that was for the glory of God. And so SDG stood for sole deo gloria, the Latin phrase which means to God alone be all the glory. He didn't even just put DG, deo gloria, to the glory of God. He said he wanted it to express to God alone, period, exclusively 
be the glory. That's what we're talking about here in this prayer. We come in this doxology of praise, this doxology of expression. Oh Lord, to you alone, by yourself, be all the glory. There are other places in Scripture that do the same thing. One of my favorite passages is Romans chapter 11. After Paul has dealt with all this great theological majesty from, from chapter 1 through the, to this point at the end of chapter 11, he's dealt with God's sovereignty, he's dealt with God's providence, he's get, dealt with man's sin and everything else. This is how Paul ends it. He says, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For, he who has known, for, for who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who became his counselor? Or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. I mean, can you just hear Paul? Or see Paul? sitting in that room wherever he was writing the letter of Romans, the letter of the Romans, and he's told them all this great stuff about God and how we were in, inadequate and how we could not save ourselves and how we entered into that fallen state by our own choice through our father Adam, and here we are in sin, and God by his glorious grace has redeemed his people from that sin and given them life and brought them into justification and sanctification and will ultimately lead them into glorification, and he comes to the end and he just says, Says, thank you God through this doxology and he says for to, from him and through him and to him are all things to him be the glory forever amen are the Ephesian Christians in Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 20 when Paul writes this now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all we ask or think according to the power that works within us. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. He writes that after three chapters of doctrinal expression of God's majesty and God's power. Or Paul writing to young Timothy when he says, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all. And to Christ Jesus, who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate, that you may keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will bring about in the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, and the Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion, eternal rule forever. Amen. I mean, do you just, do you just sense the expression from the disciples' prayer that runs throughout the New Testament of praise to the glory of Almighty God? Wow. Wow. To yours, to, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Yours is an eternal kingdom. Yours, O oh Lord, is an eternal power. Now, some don't want to acknowledge that. 
Satan certainly doesn't want to acknowledge the kingdom of God. Satan wants to set up his own kingdom in this world. But, but yours is an eternal kingdom. Yours is an eternal power. Yours is an eternal glory. It is forever and forever. It never ends. I read something this week a friend of mine wrote, and it just kind of fits here. I hope I can remember exactly how I wrote it. It's just a question he asked. The question was this. Are you more disturbed by the fact that Barack Obama is the President of the United States or that Satan is the Prince of this age? If the first one disturbs you more than the second one, then you ought to ask why. Because the second one has far more eternal ramifications. The second one has far more eternal consequences. The second one is far more diabolical than the first. But here's the problem. We get so caught up in this worldly kingdom that we forget that we serve a far greater kingdom and a far greater king and a king who will be victorious and a king who will reign forever and ever and a king who has bought us with his own blood and a king who has redeemed us from the kingdom of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of light. We serve a king and a kingdom that will not ever end. Ever. Amen. Some of you just said amen. I was hoping you would do that. Not for me, but for the next point. Because the next point, amen, simply means it is so. Or truly. That's right. Some of our brothers might say, preach it. It's a little... Devoration of amen. Amen just means it's so. It is truly so. Sometimes that word in the Greek, amen, is used to begin a statement. Jesus started that, amen, amen, which meant listen, truly, truly, verily, verily, listen to me. This is important. Sometimes it comes as the end. Here, by saying everything that's been said, it is true. I love the statement. In 2 Corinthians 1.20, where the apostle says, For as many as are the promises of God, in him they are yes. Therefore also through him is our amen to the glory of God through us. What does that mean? It means his promises are true. And his promises are to us. And his promises are guaranteed in us. And his promises will be revealed in us. But his promises are not to come to us as sort of a, as sort of a boy, look what I've got. But his promises are to come to us and through us and from us for the glory of God. Why does God bless you? 
because you're so good? Because he's so lucky to have you? No. Now, God blesses you that you might be a blessing to somebody else. God blesses you that you might be a conduit for his blessings. God blesses you and strengthens you and gives you his glory and his presence and you, you understand that and you see that not so that you might take it in and say, oh man, look what I've got. So that it might become a reality in your life and flow through you to the lives of other people. That's what this prayer is all about. It's not about me. It's about the glory of God and how glorious he is and how he has graciously he has graciously allowed us to participate in his kingdom. Does that excite you? Does that give you just a little bit of a thrill that the God, the creator, the, the sustainer, the redeemer, the one who rules over everything and everywhere, there is nothing that is not under his authority. There is nothing that is not under his rule. There is nowhere that you can ever go that the kingdom of God is not in effect. And God has said, you as my children, as a part of my kingdom, will be a part of that with me. This world's not your home. You may vote in this government. You may be a good citizen of the United States, and I encourage you to be. I'm a patriot in every respect of the word. But folks, when it comes to whether I serve a living God or I serve an earthly government, there is no choice. There is no, there is no co-equal existence. That's what, the psalm, that's what the psalmist says over and over. That's what this prayer says. Yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. In my life, in my daily life, in my daily walk, in everything I do, it's not about me and what I want and what I need and, and I'm not going to whine about this or that. It's about your glory. And how I'm being used for your glory. And how I'm being used to expand your kingdom through the gospel. Oh Lord, reign supreme. Let's pray. <coughs> Father, Yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory. Period. It is forever settled. It is true and truly and so in every respect of the word. Whether we feel it or whether we like it, So, Father, we ask you to bring us into submission to it. What a glorious journey this has been in this prayer. And Lord, for the rest of this sermon, what a glorious and somewhat convicting journey it will be. But 
Father, speak to us and, and draw us to that, draw us to that expression of a total commitment to you, of your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your will be done in my life as it is in heaven. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.